Thank you for joining us for Olive Oil and Time's first episode titled Land Before Honor. My name is Nura, and in this episode, Samir and I will be discussing the history of this popularized Palestinian national slogan and how it relates to women's liberation struggles and the development of the women's movement in Palestine from the Nekba until the first Intifada. We will also be introducing ourselves on this episode primarily through sharing with you our personal histories and the stories of our mothers. Before we get started, we want to introduce to you the song that we played as an entrance to this episode, developed from a poem written by Palestinian citizen of Israel, or 48 Palestinian, Mahmoud Darwish. This song is performed by Marcel Khalifa, titled Ya Ummi, which means my mother in Arabic. This poem was written after Darwish's mother visited him in an Israeli prison in Haifa. The first verse of this poem is recited in English as, Dearly, I yearn for my mother's bread, my mother's coffee, mother's brushing touch. Childhood is raised in me, day upon day in me, and I so cherish life, because if I died, my mother's tears would shame me. Samir and I want to dedicate this episode to all our mothers have given us, so that we may have life today. Shukran ya ummi. إلى خبزي أمي وقهوتي أم ولمستي أمي أحن إلى خبزي أمي وقهوتي أم ولمستي أمي وتكبر فيه الطفولة. What's up, everyone? This is Samir. And this is Nura. And we're Olive Oil in Time. We're here recording from Nura's studio, a.k.a. her bedroom. <laughs> and we're here recording our first ever episode, Land Before Honor. And we basically invited our mothers on the show. We Nura and I unpacked uh, masculinity. We unpacked the history behind uh, Zionists' attempt to destroy family honor. It's a very cohesive, very um, all-encompassing episode i think it's a very powerful first episode for us to do and we chose to do this because femininity is centralized to our identity and what we do in our daily life and how we analyze daily structures so we understood that although this is a very serious very powerful um topic to choose for our first podcast we did want to have that uh impact and opportunity on our um i don't want to say fan base but our you know to the people tuning in also, and to tell our origin stories. Um, yeah, y'all don't know who we are, and y'all are about to know who we are. <laughs> like, honestly, get some popcorn going. <laughs> it's a roller coaster. It's powerful, and it's very real. We are not censoring any of our history and any of our podcasts. And I think this first episode very much so captures the the tone and the the goals of this podcast that we want for one another and for the base that's listening. We actually recorded the bulk of our podcast. How are you feeling after you've heard 
um, you know, what we've, what we've been speaking about. It was very emotional, especially when it came to recording our moms and hearing the story of our moms and just how much they cherish us because of what they've gone through in their life. Uh, I feel all good about this as well. Likewise, um, we put a lot of work into this. It's very beautiful. We did, and it was really nice to be able to uh, connect some of the things I'm really passionate about uh, to my own personal story and to be able to um, have some intimate conversations with my mom um, to bring her into this project. I'm really glad that we got a chance to actually uh, record our mother's feelings about some moments of their lives and how that affects us and and our connection to them yeah so this this was definitely this podcast this recording this specific episode was very much so a personal experience what i found what really reiterated and hit and drove it home for me was when i wanted you to realize that you and my mom actually had a lot in common that you might not have known um and seeing you uh when you came over yesterday and seeing you two like interact on that level um was very powerful it was very emotional and it really just sort of made me have this feeling of interconnectedness yeah actually I, I really felt that there was a lot of interconnectedness into our stories even though mine originated in um <clears throat> excuse me in Galilee and Jerusalem and yours in Bethlehem mm -hmm. and uh, we came to this country uh, with a different storyline uh, but, you know, kind of coming back together and, and getting a chance to meet your mom and hearing her feelings and the emotions about her growing up without her parents. And then also hearing her mother or excuse me, hearing when she heard my mother yeah. kind of talk about reconnecting with me and seeing the pain in her eyes that I've never heard my mom cry like that before. I felt like there was a little girl next to me the way she was whimpering and that young woman in her was like who I was at yeah. times in my life too before I met my mom. So I, it really hit close to me. Me too. Um, and I felt, I really did feel like at that point, our stories kind of really came full circle. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's powerful, y'all. Get your tissue boxes. <laughs> Land Before Honor, the, the narrative that it was it, it was sort of this like discourse adopted by like our people in, in more conservative villages in response to how Israelis would pol would use like political rape against our women. Yeah. So um, the Israelis, well, let's call them the Zionists because they're not Israelis, Israelis. till 1948. And this was the uh, method in which Zionist colonizers were actually ethnically cleansing Palestinian villages. So there is a, there is a language uh, difference that needs to be recognized that Israel is post-state identity. Zionist encompasses colonization from the beginning until the present moment. Uh, so the Zionists were trained to understand the Arabic language, to dress as Arabs, and, and to portray themselves as Arabs, and infiltrate Palestinian villages mm -hmm. in order to learn about our religion, our politics, our culture, our society structures, etc., to exploit our weaknesses. And, and one of the things that they learned was about this concept of honor uh, mm -hmm. that uh, Palestinians use to control women's sexuality. This idea that Palestinians are like, this Arab identity isn't thrusted upon us and that we're like these inherently patriarchal beings that we're the only people that practice this. But 
there's a history behind that. And I think that what we're doing right now is we're reacting to being colonized and we're reacting to being called barbarians. I think that part of our podcast is to decolonize that reaction. Yeah. We don't need to sit here and tell people that we are somehow equal in civility to right. every other barbaric society that hates women. <laughs> we in live our in a society, world. We have a concept in the Middle East that is uh, honor and shame. It's a culture of the Middle East. It's Absolutely. being Arab. It's being North African. It's being um, even Greek and Turkish and Italian have honor shame culture. So Palestinians have it and the, Israel- the Zionists, excuse me, come into our villages and they understand through these Orientalists how it works. How it works. Family value, social value, is invested in the way in which each individual within the family operates, operates. in society. Yeah, And that, is, that goes between males and females of the family. Between children, adults, and elders, everybody in the family is acting role. in a collective way. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, being portrayed negatively as an individual tarnishes the image the of entire your entire family. family. Yeah. One of the aspects of honor and shame is attributed, attached to, I should say, women's sexuality. Mm-hmm. That a woman has to say pure, she has to say a virgin before marriage, all of that. And Zionists, as you stated earlier, would go into our communities, would understand the dynamics of those relationships and, and, and the dynamics between like masculinity and femininity in the public and private sphere, social sphere. And the whole idea was that they exploited women, they exploited masculinity, perpetuated political rape to strip women of that honor. And by stripping the women in those villages from that honor, they stripped the whole family. Yeah, and Palestinian society reacted as like the stripping of Palestinian honor. The Israelis exploited this aspect of our society and Mm -hmm. social structure to implement a systematic ethnic cleansing. So alongside massacring, alongside forced displacement of specific Palestinian villages, they used political rape and they would help spread the narrative of what they were doing, the atrocities they were committing in specific villages to surrounding villages. And people from those villages would hear these stories and to protect the women in their villages or their family's honor they chose to flee. Yeah, and that's... It was a tactic, it was a method. So then land before honor is a narrative that enters as a response to that flee. Yeah. Fleeing. Palestinians that were working in the resistance movement to colonization were trying to stop Palestinians from fleeing. And that was one of the ways that they were able to do that was to say, hey, the national liberation movement is more important than the individual. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, it obviously kind of makes us cringe a bit because this is rape. This is sexual violence against women that is being placed second to national liberation. It's a sacrifice we don't discuss. Women and members of the family had to sacrifice that for national liberation. Like we had to sacrifice discussing that and we had to sacrifice dealing with it if it happened for the greater cause. And I almost wonder if sacrifice isn't the right word because I feel like sacrifice takes on a personal autonomy, right? Like there's this choice. Yeah, like we chose to sacrifice this for national liberation, but really what it was is it was enthrusted upon. I think that's where the poison of nationalism comes in, which could probably be another topic, is the way in which Tune into our third episode. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I do think so, because I know that, like, my mother experienced a lot of trauma in her Mm -hmm. family, which we'll get into. um, But it wasn't a choice of hers. It wasn't a sacrifice she was making to the nation. But 
this use of sexual violence against Palestinian society to hasten the, the Palestinian exodus. Yeah. Palestinians are responding by saying, no, 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 land before honor. We have to stay we fight regardless for our land. regardless of the threat the Zionists bring to our villages, we have to remain in the land. And what that does is it recasts sexual violence against women and sub- subsequently the loss of their honor as a national struggle. That becomes a problem because when we reframe sexual violence against women in that manner, individual members of Palestinian society that are committing these violent sexual crimes against Palestinian women are not being held accountable. accountable. Yeah. Because, okay, now it's a national struggle. Well, how do we deal with this in a national manner? Well maintaining our religious and our traditional cultural, cultural beliefs values, yeah. and values. Well, th- the way they did it is they silenced it. No, we're not going to hold it against women. We're going to not talk about, about it. it. We're going to dismiss it as being... We're not going to give it power by by uh, actively shaming women. But that, we're also not going to be accountable for it. Right, and that's the second side of it. And then when it's happening within our society, it's then recasted as being a uh, a political Mm -hmm. struggle, not a civil struggle. And so there's no structure within within our society to actually deal with sexual violence against women. In a sense, when we are discussing, like, to what extent do we have the right to speak of our mother's stories? I feel like that's a form of community accountability between you and I. Yeah, and I think that this conversation right of how do we hold ourselves accountable to their privacy to their history and what they really want to share with the world as it relates to us because of their stories their traumas are literally in our flesh biologically you know and after we were born we are products of that trauma if x y and z didn't happen to my mother i would not have been born and i think you said that last time like if your mother had not done what she did she wouldn't have met your father Mm -hmm. blah 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 like life is a series of unfortunate events part of palestinian society is this like culture of silence over family issues yeah and i think that a lot of people who are listening from palestinian communities struggle with this too Mm -hmm. because we do have this social norm that we're not supposed to air our dirty, dirty laundry. laundry yeah, but at the same time, if we're not airing our dirty laundry, we're not holding our society accountable. accountable. How do we navigate that? Yeah. Like, how do we... I know that you've had um, conversations with your mom about that, that you guys yes. have a special relationship. Absolutely. How did you guys navigate that? Well, it always started for me as, like... It was basically, like, in elementary school or middle school or even high school... I would always center my mother's experience in like school projects. And I would bring these school projects back home and my mom would see them and she would see that like, if, if it was like in my poetry class, it was a poem about like all the suffering my mom endured. If it was an art class, I would bring back like a piece of art that was like about my mom. It mostly came through like actual like homework assignments and stuff at school and I brought it back to my mom and she would see it and she'd either hang it up or she would like compliment it. Um, But as I got older and as I wanted to articulate myself better and as I'm introduced to these ideas of like patriarchy, toxic masculinity, it started making me realize that this isn't normal. Like I used to have the mindset that almost everyone lived in a household like that. And as I started, like, pushing back against my father, who still lived with us at uh, um, at this time, I started asking my mother what is and isn't okay. And I, I, I would use social media as, like, my diary. 
and uh, my mom caught wind of a few few posts or like um, pieces of art I'd make and she would say like oh take that one down or can you like change that or something because your family's watching overseas and you never know who's watching and we don't want to air our dirty laundry but this is a very new conversation that my mother and I have revisited and, and I've gained my mother's trust she knows that I can navigate these topics without either embarrassing her or without viewing it through a micro lens where it's not just about her family. I, I do have her consent to talk about these issues because my mother got married at the age of 20. Nine months later, she had me. So, and and at the beginning of my mother's relationship, my father and, and his family weren't abusive, but that started as I, as I got older. And as my mother was abused, so too was I. So and that abuse was kind of interlinked at the same time. When you reflect on your mother's stories, how do you censor yourself? How do you, what do you filter out? I don't really filter out anything. I just it's it's something that needs to be said, you know? Um my mother was in an abusive relationship and so was I with my father. We were both in an abusive relationship. I was in an abusive relationship that I didn't choose. I was born into it and the the perpetuator was my father. Okay. My mother was on the receiving end of abuse from her partner. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in a crippling society that is like facing economic sanctions and that is on the receiving end of occupation and genocide, marriage is often the only way of survival. So my mother couldn't escape that marriage. And we were trapped in it for a really long time. So um, how do we demarcate the lines? Like my family, my mom told me, we've had conversations about what we talk about, what we don't talk about, but it's always been in the relationship with our family. And and honestly, I mean, you know, I'm a Palestinian citizen of the state of Israel and so is my family. So a lot of what my mom has taught me to censor myself on is how do I engage politics in a Palestinian society in Israel? And again, kind of what you're saying with like your posts online, like I literally had a conversation this week <laughs> with my mom where my family is concerned about my political posts. Yeah. Like, you know, I've been taught how to navigate politics within a Palestinian society yeah. and how to talk about occupation because there's so many people in our society, like one in four Palestinians are collaborating with the Zionists against the Palestinian yeah. community. And it can be your family members. So it's not, it's like, how do you talk? about um, occupation? How do you talk about the horrors of what the Israelis are doing against our communities with your own community when you are looking over your back and wondering who is who's reporting gonna on you? It. Yeah, who's so gonna... like those are conversations we have. My mom never really came to me and was like, don't tell this and this about my story. My mom told me she has a very candid <laughs> way of telling her story. Likewise. My mom suffers from an extreme form of PTSD. And when it comes up, the story of her trauma, it becomes a very violent expression of that recollection. She doesn't understand how she transfers her trauma. And so when she does tell me her story, she's very honest. She doesn't hold anything back. She tells the details of her story. But we never have a conversation because usually afterwards, I'm so traumatized from it that I can't re-engage her right away and be like how do i hold this story as part of my story 
for me, it, what's so difficult is that my mom doesn't have to tell me those stories. She doesn't have to tell me stories of her trauma because I lived it with her. Um, but what about her trauma before? I mean, she lived in a conservative family. I mean, what, what one example, my mom's father was abusive to her mother and her mother left her when she was like two or three years old. So she grew up with a single father that loved her a lot. And he was assassinated by the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, when she was 13. And so she was adopted and spent and spent a lot of time with like her father's side of the family, which was like an incredibly conservative um, family. Really just marrying my father and being taken away from her family and being sucked into like my father's side of the family. As, as I hit like four or five years old and we came to, we immigrated to America, I remember, like, as as a child, I used to be so confused. I'd be like, oh, Baba, why aren't you taking us out as much anymore? Oh, Baba, why aren't you, like, doing this with us anymore? Baba, why haven't you, like, why haven't you, like, taken Mama out? Looking back now, I'm realizing, oh, at that same time, that's when the abuse started, and that's when my father started disconnecting from us and my mom. I really do feel like she, she was all alone at that time. Like, I was a child. And I think my mom grants me a lot of consent to speak about this because like her, I think she sees herself in me and she trusts me to tell her story because for the longest time she couldn't tell her story because just like her, I did not have a father in my life. Although she had her father for around a decade. I, we, we both grew up without fathers. Although they're different experiences, my mother has always told me that what links us is is how we refuse to be silent as people who were abused. So then how do we take this, right? Because that's your experience, yeah. which is wonderful that you had a oh, mother oh. that um <laughs> no, that was that had a you had a mother that really encouraged you to speak out and to and, and to take break the silence. Yeah. Um but for Palestinians that don't, how do we navigate that? We're not telling the story of people 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. We're telling the story of our mothers, mothers who are and, and here that, now. That, that have privacy concerns. There, you know, we we don't tell everything to everybody. Yeah. Right. Regardless of what society we're in, how much ownership do we have over their experiences? I don't draw that line. My mom and I don't draw that line. We speak about it. We honestly just speak about it. We speak about our experiences. First and foremost, I speak about my experience as someone who was on the receiving end of an abusive father who also abused his mother. But no one experienced my father's abuse from a partner point of view besides my mother. So in that regard, my, I draw the line because my, fa my father wasn't my husband. I don't understand the dynamics of that. I, I was not in a relationship with him. My mother was. She can speak um in regards to that the dynamic of that relationship but at the end of the day the same man who was totally unaware of the dynamics that he had on his son and on his wife was the perpetuator of abuse my my life and my mother is not anyone else's life and anyone else's mother i have as as someone who presents as a male i have the privilege to discuss these topics and to demand accountability from our community, but to also present the narrative and context in, in in a context that demands accountability from my community. I'm not turning to Zionists and telling them my story. I'm looking inward. I'm looking at my community. We're not taking a stage in front of white folks or 
Zionists and airing our dirty laundry, we're looking to others to heal. I think for me, it is a lot harder because I'm adopted, which, you know, I want to share more about. Yeah. But I struggle with this question of how much of my mother's story do I own because my mother went through horrific traumas, traumas that created some of the most severe forms of PTSD I've seen. Mm-hmm. And that trauma occurred before I was born and occurred while I was in her womb and occurred when I was born. And for the next four years while I was still living in Palestine with her and in the orphanage was all around us. And then when I came here, my mom endured more trauma over the 12 years we were apart. And she was able to pick herself out of this darkness and rebuild her life and, and, and um, reconnect with her family. And when we engaged each other as adults, as I was 18 when we met for the first time, that trauma was in her and, and then guided our relationship as we tried to navigate being mother and daughter with so many years apart. So for me, like I have all of these horrific stories of trauma that develop my mother and create the situation that I'm born from. Yeah. And it is a question of how do I honestly engage that without transferring that trauma to people? Yeah. Because my mother went through domestic abuse. She experienced sexual assault within her community. She also experienced political rape. She experienced so much in her life, in her family, living in the streets, being in prison. And, and then also the, the hardship she endured as a Palestinian woman in uh, Tel Aviv trying to build her life in an entirely Jewish city. And then also as a Palestinian woman who became very comfortable with her Hebrew lifestyle, struggling to reconnect to her Palestinian Arab family. The social structure that she's now like trying to re-navigate is very similar to the social structure that caused her to want to leave her family. So like all of that is very much part of her life. And part of my life. Yeah. So how do I have that conversation while respecting the fact that, like, we don't need to know everything. say everything? Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's, we need to know everything. We need to know that our society is imperfect, not just because of Zionism, but because of our own, own traditions. Culture. Yeah, our own culture. And, and the two, right? And, like, and it, there's a toxicity of toxic masculinity <laughs> that's indigenous to Palestinian society with... The toxic masculinity that is militarized by the colonial, like, expansion of the Zionists. Exploited by Zionists as well. And, well, and, and saturated into the conflict, creating the conflict in very masculine terms that pushes women out into even more vulnerable positions. So there's both. And I don't know, I just, I want to, that's why for me this is such an important question I know that you have these conversations with your mom yeah. and it's really easy to say, oh, you know, she trusts me. Yeah. But it's not easy to say that, though. But like it's as I get older, my mom shares more of her past with me because she's seeing that I'm maturing and she can share these complicated uh, structures. She can share these stories that symbolize complicated structures. Well, I, I think that a lot of... Um, y- young 
humans go through that as they're developing into adulthood. Is there? We were well, talking you're about older it. than me, so I am. I mean, I remember that with my like, because my adopted mom, like, our conversations changed when I got into my twenties. I learned about her suffering through depression through my whole life. I learned that the um, like we didn't get everything we wanted when we asked for it, right? Like we were a working class single parent yeah. family, and I learned why that was and how much stress our financial situation placed on her, yeah. and 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 really learned like from an a mature perspective of things that to me were just normal. Like, okay, we're going to have a very simple meal tonight was for her, like putting food on the table and like really struggling to make sure our needs were met. And so, and that happened all in my twenties. So I get where you're coming from. And for me with my birth mother, it's even more complex because I don't have this history of growing in a household with them. Yeah. We're dealing with each other as adults, and the weight of that is thrown on me. She's learning, right? She sacrificed motherhood for us to give us the opportunity we have to live in this country and to to live with our adopted mother who gave us love and cherished us, like, in ways that I can't describe. And and she couldn't do that for us, and she sacrificed that. And so our, our reconnection becomes learning how to be mother and daughter between two people that have spent essentially 18 years away from each other and 11 years later which is where we are today our relationship is a lot more complex and i feel like i'm at a point where i'm appreciating her experiences more i'm appreciating that the real sacrifice she made for us and the real suffering she endured and how hard it was for her to come from the place she was from where she was at right like the actual strength it took from an individual to lift themselves out of her situation and i appreciate the effort and the commitment that she took to overcome her struggles in her quest to find us you know in her like absolute love for us that if she knew that if she was to overcome these challenges that one day the universe would bring us back into each other's lives and it did but a lot of the sacrifices she made wasn't her choice, right? Absolutely. Going back to the use of like sacrifice. sacrifice. My family, my mother's family abused her and abused all the women in their family. And I don't want to excuse it. There's a part of our well, culture that's to, abusive. We have to understand why. Yeah. And my solve. mother was born in um, Galilee in a tiny village that was very conservative, still is very conservative. During the military administration of Palestinian villages within what would be the newly created state of Israel. And for people that don't know what this period means in Palestinian history, the military administration was basically a separate set of laws that Palestinian citizens, non-Jewish residents of the newly formed Jewish state were placed under. And it was essentially military rule. It was the methods of blockading Gaza, of occupying East Jerusalem and the West Bank, of creating, establishing uh, Jewish settlements and expanding them, appropriating Palestinian lands. All of those methods were created. Can you give a time period? Yeah. So 48. 1948, the establishment of the Jewish state, state. to like okay. mid-60s. My mom would have been only a few years old when they dismantled, officially dismantled, the military administration. And 
they would create fences around Palestinian villages. Palestinians in one village weren't allowed to travel to other Palestinian villages that were only a few minutes away. They literally blockaded, imprisoned Palestinians in their villages. They restricted them from access to employment. They restricted them from access to their farmlands, and they let their farmlands go into decay and establish land appropriation laws that would then transfer those lands to the Jewish National Fund and redistribute them for Jewish-only uses and establish uh, kibbutzim and uh, moshavs and other Jewish settlements within Galilee and across the state of Israel um, that were, again, Jewish-only societies, communities. And they wouldn't allow Palestinians to get education. They wouldn't allow Palestinians to form political parties. They wouldn't allow Palestinians to have um, newspapers or radio or any form of communication. They literally imprisoned Palestinian society in Israel from each other, as well as from the outside Arab world. They wouldn't allow Arab media to come in, Arab news, anything. They control the administration. The military administration was absolutely draconian and this is the society my mother was born into in the small village that at the time of her birth like 80 percent of the village land had been appropriated and over the um time of her childhood the remaining uh 27 percent would be taken to this day we only to today we only have like three percent of our original land so, like, all of this, the economic stress of having your land being taken from you, the social stress, where do, uh, what is the role of men in a society where they were traditionally the liaisons of the public sphere, but now the public sphere has been completely crippled and destroyed, dismantled, right? The women of Palestinian society were traditionally given the power over the internal sphere, the family yeah. sphere. So now you have a power struggle for the small amount of power that's there and and there's a lot to grab it away from the women well and let's grab power Power. what power is available from the woman in the domestic sphere and so women again being the most fragile marginalized members of our society are the ones that are most vulnerable to being to losing more right and the same thing um like we talk about domestic violence in the united states right like we were talking about this like the rate of domestic violence among uh, military families is much higher than non-military families. Like the fact that there's violence, Palestinians were shot dead if they were caught sneaking into their farmlands to water their olive groves and to take care of their, their farms, right? And, And this is the, you know, the true angering part is that Palestinians would be in their villages, could see their land through the fences and could see Jews in neighboring, um, uh, settlements working their land even though these lands were closed off for military purposes but if the Palestinian were to go into this land they would shot. be shot or arrested and um, my mother's uh, brothers a lot of them were arrested during uprisings that were occurring within Palestinian society so my mom had a, like their family was under a lot of external pressure a lot of external violence and that violence penetrated the home and it completely shattered my mother's life within their home to the point where she left. And that's something that uh, a lot of Palestinian women go through a lot of struggle. My aunts all experience the same amount of violence that my mother experienced, the same family, and they stayed in the home. So my mom leaving 
is a unique act, but the violence she endured is not unique. That is part of a lot of Palestinian experiences, partially because of our traditions and partially because of our occupation and because of the military presence. My aunts chose, like many Palestinian women's today, to marry and leave the village through marriage, which can be very catastrophic um, because, you know, as we both know, you just marry the first guy that becomes available. Yeah. You may not. That's what my mom did. I think it's difficult for me in English. I speak English a little, you know, never I was in school. Uh, but I try in my in all my power to tell what I feel when I see you in Jerusalem after 20 years. Wow. Wow, Nora. When we go to Aviva Zamir and I see you, wow. My heart, I think one hour before I, I meet you, my heart, it was, will be like boom. I can't, I need oxygen, you know. I, I need something, my heart, my foot, not go, my hand. I think my hand, it was like, like never I forgive this time. And when I see you go inside, first you open the door, after you it was same. Wow, when I see you. I remember when you open the door, and she look about in my eyes. And you smile for me. I was in shock, in shock. When you hug me and I cry, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I put your head on my body. I don't believe it. I touch you. I don't, I think I was in dream. I was dreaming. This day, never. I feel you every day. This, the first, the first your hug, I feel it now. I feel it all the time, the, the first meeting you, the first hug from you, it's with me. I feel every day when I think about you all the time, I, I feel your hug. The first hug is the, the, for me, is God. For me, wow. All the time, all the day, every day morning, I'd say it for Sarah, thank you that she gave me chance to meet my children. Every day in morning when I go wake up, I say thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah, that she let me to touch you, let me to touch Sam, let me to hug you. 
you know, all the time when you come to Israel, you give me a light. You let me, when I see you, I live five years again. You give me five years to life. You are like, um, you know, I love you, just I love you. You are my heart. You are my heart. <laughs> child my mom did not was not educated past the age of 13 did not learn english formally taught herself english actually through watching american television she was so determined to know us Mm -hmm. that she knew to communicate to us she had to teach herself english English. and so she taught herself english it's broken it's hard to um put together sometimes but like every time she speaks to me in english I feel the weight of the love that went into all of the practice so that she could commu- she could say sentences to us and express herself to us. And it's not a perfect form of expression, but it is like, again, one of those like immense, it's, it's one of those it. immense acts of love that she's Absolutely. given us. That's really what inspired me to revisit and to relearn Arabic. I mean, I grew up in America. I grew up here. Uh, we immigrated here when I was five years old and... For a very long time, especially during puberty, my mother and I just, we couldn't communicate. I couldn't explain to my mom, like, the hormonal changes I was going through. And I hated that because, like, everyone else's parents was, like, they knew about it and they could talk about it and they were more lenient with their children. But my mom just couldn't couldn't accommodate for the changes I was going through because I, we couldn't communicate to each other how we were feeling. Mm-hmm. I, I did relearn Arabic Within the last year and a half, two years, I, I, I took classes. I, I started watching TV shows again. I, I'm starting to read books now. And my mom, as she pursues higher education, is now revisiting English. And that has sort of... That in itself is one of the triggering points of why the dynamics in our relationship is changing now. Because we're able to talk a lot more in depth now. As I have gone through a few traumatic experiences within the last year, and I'm able to speak with my mother on that a bit it's taking a little bit of time for her to process what i'm trying to uh communicate with her it's changing it is changing our relationship and we're moving in a different direction and it's a new direction it took me a while to realize that a lot of frustration we had with one another is because we couldn't understand one another not uh, not linguistically, but where we were coming from uh, emotionally. I don't think in a billion years my mom expected me at the age of 20 to approach her and be like, I was in a relationship with another man. I think just approaching my mom with that, like, and you know, that was another thing, like being in that abusive relationship and biting my tongue and not, I tell my mom everything because that woman is the reason I'm here today. She has carried me through so much that has gone through my life and this abusive relationship was possibly the most difficult thing I've ever gone through in my life and to not be able to tell my mom that because I wasn't out to her kept me in that relationship 
And when it ended and I finally came out to her, like, that was, like, another layer on top of being queer. Another layer of of our relationship that we had to discuss. And it was just... I was in limbo. It kept me in limbo for such a long time because for the for all of my life, it was women that helped me heal. It was my mother that taught me what it meant to be to persevere. It was my mother that taught me what unconditional love looks and feels like. And in that period after my breakup, I had no one. I didn't have my mom. I know she wanted to be there for me, but she didn't know how to be for the first time in her life. And I didn't want to keep talking to her about queerness because I knew it hurt her. She didn't love me any less, but it was a foreign concept to her, and it was kind of like out of nowhere. And I know she also slightly felt like I was going behind her back, which I was doing. But that's another layer that we don't talk about being queer and Palestinian, is how the dynamics of our relationships change according to that. And my mom and I are are working on that right now. I feel like my mom and I, we were stuck in such a, for so long, our relationship felt and looked a particular way that when it started changing after I came out to her and as I become an adult, we both didn't know what to do. I was angry and she was frustrated and I, I was angry because I didn't know what I would do if I lost my best friend. Okay, it created a sadness okay. in me that yeah. would never go. I raised on an orphanage without no mom. Uh, being an orphan is uh, create a sadness on my soul that will never go away. As you know about uh, rules, you have to follow their rules. Something valuable in their hand, they don't wanna, uh, they don't want us, anyone to do mistakes. They are responsible. So it was very firm. There's no compassion. And all of it, uh, do this, don't do that, do this, army. I always wanted someone to bat on my back, someone that I could trust him with my secrets. I could talk without no fear. But God was generous with me. And the minute I have my first son, Samir, this is my moment. It was my moment. And it's a whole life to me. I start seeing on a different eyes. My sight, like seeing things that, that I never saw before. I see the best, I see the future. I see my dream, like my dreams maybe will come true. Whatever I didn't achieve, I will see my son and the other kids will achieve it. This moment, <coughs> never forgettable. I will keep remembering this moment because this moment made me believe that there is fairness, made me survive.
made me give, made me love. Was it hard? I actually don't share your experience because I'm not out to my Palestinian family. Mm-hmm. I do feel like my mom would understand. I know that her life experience kind of puts her in a position, allows yeah. her to see my humanity, even um, though my life choices aren't necessarily the traditional choices that uh, Palestinian uh, women make. But I'm still terrified to tell her, and I want to tell her in person, so I want to wait till I get there. And <laughs> I'm terrified to go. And that's something else that's like been really eating me because I want to go home for Christmas to oh. see my mom. I'm just You're like losing. No, I'm like losing my breath at night. I'm losing my sleep because I'm terrified to cross a checkpoint. I'm terrified that... It's not fun. <laughs> I know it's not fun. I Every time I cross, I spend four hours and it's I'm how, harassed. How and I know... I'm strip searched and I'm asked all these questions about who I'm going to and what my relationships are with people, what my intent are and like, you know, is and also questions that remind me that I'm not safe. Um, you know, they'll they know when I go to certain engagements and they ask me about it if I if I omit it. So these oh, like yeah. experiences are already horrific. And now I'm just terrified because I'm taking more of a public stance on my queerness and being more I've spoken about it and I'm terrified that I'm going to get to the checkpoint and they're going to know and they're going to say like, likewise, I'm I'm so they're like, oh, so you're gay. Um, Your family know about it. I'm sure they don't. I know they don't. And uh, we're going to tell them if you don't do X, Y, and they're going to try to weaponize my, my identity. And that terrifies me because I'm also not ready to tell my family. But I thought Israeli society supported gay people. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> Not <laughs> Palestinians, obviously. And and it's a sacrifice. Like, you either sacrifice yourself or you sacrifice your family. I mean, that's why one in four Palestinians are collaborating with the, Pal- with the Israelis. And they're not doing it because they support Zionist ideology. They're, they're doing it because it. they're entrapped. And um, whether they're entrapped because they're women and uh, the Zionists try to exploit their sexual desires as youth um, and try to get them into relationships with um, abusive men or men in general and they take photos and they, and they document it and then they oh, use that against their, yeah. yeah against their, the concept of honor we're going back to land before honor right um, and make it public or they're doing it to queer Palestinians or they're doing it to Palestinians needing medical help to get visas to cross borders to get certain medical assistance you know they're put with that ultimatum of hey if you want this visa you're going to collaborate for us and um and yeah, and that terrifies me to have that ultimatum. And uh, and I don't know, like, obviously what will happen at the border, but it terrifies me. And it also terrifies me because they use sexual right, political rape. Like, 
they'll use certain types of violence to dehumanize you even more. Yeah. And the context changes, you know, for women, it, it, for women, political rape is used to scare isn't it? It's used to scare the Palestinian families. Well, right? it's also used to destroy the woman's soul, soul right? Yeah. Like, oh, let's absolutely. talk about the individual as well for a minute. But, but it for is. men, it's used to humiliate and it's used to humiliate them. So for me, and destroy be- them, and, and destroy d- them, destroy them, destroy their psyche. That's why I'm so scared. As like you know, to go back as a queer Palestinian, like I'm so scared what they would do to me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm just I'm scared also, what they would do to us. And I'm also scared what they'll do to my family. Possible conversation is like, oh, yeah, by the way, this woman in your family is queer. We're going to tell everybody in your village unless you do this. And so they can even if they can't convince the individual to collaborate, they can go to your family. They can go to your uncles, your cousins. And, and they're thinking, oh, I have the best interests of the family in mind. I need to work with them so that you know, our whole family isn't affected because, you know, I mean, you know, it really well, like the fear of, um, your sister's, uh, you know, availability for marriage, marriage. by, because of your openness yeah. to your queerness. Yeah. For me, like family honor is real. Yeah. It's not just imaginary. <laughs> it's not just an imaginary concept that has no social repercussions for Palestinians. Even here. It'd be, yeah, it'd be a lot easier for us to challenge these social structures if it was just imaginary. But it has the real implications that we're living with. There's just eyes everywhere. <laughs> you know what I'm thinking about right now? I'm thinking about Palestinian women in 1947. And I'm just thinking about how many times they were thinking the same thing we're thinking as it relates to their honor. All those thoughts that just... Like, do I go to a protest? Is it worth potentially being sexually assaulted by the, the Zionists and... and destroying my family's reputation so like this like experience of queerness is linked also to the experience of like women women. like it's still here as like queer palestinians that are speaking on these issues i feel like that's what we're here to do is to say how do we how do we have a conversation with our society how do we um put women's liberation queer liberation at the same level of importance as national, as national liberation, liberation, right? We can't have... Well, it, go, it all goes back to the same. We can't be at solidarity with ourselves. I can't say I'm in solidarity with Palestinian women because their their discourse is below national discourse, below national liberation. Mm-hmm. That makes no fucking sense. I cannot be at solidarity with the queer community. I am the queer community. And national liberation encompasses all of that. And I think it's up to our... If it's not up to our generation, it's at least up to you and I through this podcast or just through what we do in Chicago to reorient, to restructure, and to reconfigure what, like, national liberation is. Yeah, and and not neglecting our, you know, our needs. We can't half-liberate ourselves. That is so much easier said than done because we don't know what that looks like yet. Yeah. And it's up to us to, to, to show what that looks like. For women's issues too, because the, Absolutely, the yeah. whole title of this podcast, Land Before Honor, is kind of just recap after an amazing recording. Ah! Is, um, the whole concept of it... Things are happening. <laughs> oh my God. The whole concept of it is um, how women's liberation is in a way sidelined. 
right initially Mm -hmm. national liberation is put ahead of it and we can go in into another podcast i think it's really important to talk about the women's movement in palestine right we haven't really touched base on that it's so important to highlight how much work palestinian women and palestinian society has done to our own movement and liberation we don't ever really acknowledge we're not we're not reinventing the wheel here and we want to highlight that as we're moving forward and having more of these discussions y'all did it but you made it to the end of this podcast i just want to take a moment to thank you all for your support nura and i have been very humbled by the overwhelming amount of support that we've received for this podcast even before we launched this first official episode we have gotten so many likes on facebook so much uh interaction on social media so much support for the artwork nura has been putting forward one of the main goals of this podcast was to create a space for palestinians to discuss these topics with one another with safety and I want you all to know that we will hold that space for you if you want to discuss any topic with us if you have any constructive criticism for us and your input is very much so valued I want to also take a moment to thank my mother Slamideki Mama أن أداعب غصن دارية على عجل لتدرك أن كأس نبيه يمتلأ ويكفي أن أنام مبكرا لترى منامي واضحا فتطيل ليلتها لتحرسها ويكفي أن تجيء رسالة مني لتعلم أن عنواني تغير فوق قارعة